my parents split up. Divorce. Turns out my father had been living a double life, and there was a lot of sin going on in his life I never knew anything about. And it rocked me so deeply to the core that I, I didn't know who I was anymore. And I spent the next uh, few years of my teen life just kind of going crazy and being rebellious. When I became a disciple at the age of 19, I felt like I had found a perfect family again. You know, here's some people who have the right doctrine and the right life. No more of this only one and not the other. Now I've got the full package. You know, they've got the right doctrine and they love each other. And there's no secret sin. Well, <laughs> turns out there's still people even in the church, still have their problems. And about the first six months of being a Christian, the guy who had studied with me and baptized me fell away and uh, you know, didn't really want to have anything to do with the church anymore. And he had some deep character issues. And it was just, it was really, it rocked me again. And I had to deal with deep loneliness. And I remember calling a friend of mine, Dave Owens, and I asked him, I said, what's this weird feeling I have? I'm just, I'm alone and I don't know what to do with myself, and it's not exactly sadness, but there's something wrong. And he said, you're experiencing what's called loneliness. <laughs> it's a very common thing. Oh, that's what that is. I had to, like, develop a new vocabulary. I, I really didn't know what I was feeling. It was loneliness. So even in the church, I, I've had to deal with loneliness, you know. And, uh, and so there is no perfection this side of heaven. And what I've learned is that when I go through those difficult times, I, I have to look for a home in heaven. I have to look for my, my lasting peace in heaven. And that's really what I want to share with you guys this morning. We're going to look at Psalm chapter 30. And in the psalm, David, he, he beautifully expresses this tension between suffering and pain and finding peace in God, and, and how we can get through the hard times. We're going to read here from the modern English version, which I did a lot of research to make sure it was the one that matches up with the bulletin, which great job on the bulletin, by the way. And uh, we're, we're going to read this, and you can read it in your own Bibles. If you have a different version, that's fine. If you want to be in the same version as me in the bulletin, that's the modern English version. It begins here with a little text note where it says, A Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I'm, I'm just going to stop right there because that's important. You see, David had a deep desire in his heart to build a temple for God. He wanted to do something extravagant for the Lord. And when he presented this plan, God said no. You can't do it, David. He said, your hands are too bloody. You're a man of war, and you can't be the one to build my temple. And that's rough. David had to deal with that disappointment. And what's amazing is that he wrote this psalm. We see from the little inscription at the top. He wrote this psalm looking ahead to a day he wouldn't even see. Thinking about that day when the temple would be built, and it would be dedicated, and he wanted this psalm to be read at that dedication. So that's kind of cool. Just right at the beginning, there's, there's a tension between the everlasting joy in the future and the present discouragement. So we read on here in verse 1. Here's what David says. I will extol you, O Lord. And that means praise. I'm just gonna, I want to lift you up, God. For you have drawn me up and have not caused my foes 
to rejoice over me. There's one translation I love where it says, you have not caused my haters to rejoice over me. So David's saying, all my haters are silenced. And he goes on in verse 2, O Lord my God, I cried to you, and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. So he, he's recounting and remembering all the times God has come through for him. When he was hiding in the caves, when King Saul wanted to kill him. I mean, he's thinking about how God has really saved his life over the years. And then in verse 4, he, he kind of pushes out the focus from himself to the congregation, to all the people. And he says, sing to the Lord, O you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. He's, thinking, he's saying, think of his holiness. Remember in your lives how good God has been. And he goes on in verse 5, his anger endures but for a moment in his favor is life. And, and that's kind of a weird rhythm uh, I like the New International Version. It has uh, his favor lasts a lifetime. So there, there's a, a rhythm there where he says his anger endures for a moment, but his favor endures for a lifetime. Okay? Then he goes on and says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So he's saying, okay, there's going to be difficult times, but look ahead because good times are coming. And I want to pause on this and just preach on this point just a little bit. Moment and lifetime. The brief and the eternal. We shouldn't read these as superficial periods of time. We shouldn't just read this as there's going to be brief moments in your life where you're down, but overall your Christian life is going to be a cakewalk. His favor endures for a lifetime. Sometimes the way people say it is, I'm too blessed to be stressed. And I don't know, maybe some of us say that in here. I'm not going to get down on you, but I just get the sense sometimes when people say that, that it's superficial. If I ask you, how are you really doing? I'm too blessed to be stressed. That just feels disingenuous to me. I mean, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, stressed He stressed so much as he faced the cross, he was sweating blood. And who is more blessed than Jesus Christ? So so when when somebody says to me, I'm too blessed to be stressed, it's just there's a disconnect there to me. Being a Christian sometimes means being stressed. And so I'm pausing on this point to make sure we understand it's okay to be stressed. It's okay to have those moments of deep pain. I'm going to make a controversial statement here. I think oftentimes we expect too much from God. Oftentimes we ask too much from God, specifically when we ask for a stress-free life. We think, you know, I'm going to pray for the perfect job and God's going to give it to me. I'm going to pray for the perfect spouse and God's going to give it to me. I'm going to pray for the perfect kids, and God's going to give it to me. And then when he doesn't, we think something's wrong with him. And we're expecting things from God that he never promised us. He never said he would give us all of those superficial things. A lot of those things don't last. Jobs don't last. Even your relationship with your spouse, at some point, you're going to have to separate when you face the judgment seat of Christ. 
and your kids too. At some point, we're all going to stand before God as individuals. And so he doesn't promise us that in this life, we're going to get every single thing that we want, and it's all going to be perfect. And I just want us to be careful of our expectations. I, I want to caution you about having an entitled attitude, of thinking that you're going to get everything that you want. And I think we know this. I, I think it's, it's, it's right you know, in, in the frontal part of our brain. It's right on the tips of our tongue, but is it deep down in our heart? We really grasp this truth that we're not going to get everything that we want. In reality, weeping doesn't just endure for a night. At times, it endures for years. There are people, children, whose parents are abusive. Their weeping doesn't endure for a night. It endures through their whole childhood. And then even when they become adults, they carry baggage with them their whole lives. Weeping didn't just endure for a night for them and joy came in the morning. It endured for years. There are parents whose children are rebellious who go through that period of, you know, 12 to 17 and even even longer for some. And those parents' suffering doesn't just endure for a night. Their weeping may go on for years and years and the scars and the baggage of those difficult years could endure for a long, long time. And so we need to be real. that It's not just for a moment. Sometimes suffering goes deep and it lasts a long time. Illness. There's people who deal with years of illness, and it's a struggle. You know, my own wife, she gave me permission to share a little bit. When she had our first child, Daisy, she struggled with some postpartum, postpartum depression. If you're not familiar with that, what happens a lot of times for women is they, they give everything to their kids, literally, physically, in the transfer of life. I mean, my wife, she says that she used to have this really curly hair and her kids like vampires, like suck the curls out of her hair. Because that's what babies do. They, they, they suck all your nutrients and they mess with your hormones. And so her hormones were really imbalanced when she gave birth and she went through a depression. And she just couldn't feel happy. And she prayed about it and she, she fasted. And it, a whole year she went through this until she finally decided she needed to get some professional help. And uh, a counselor had said what she needed first was a massage. <laughs> and so she went to go get a massage. And the receptionist that was there was, was booking or, you know, getting my wife in for the massage. And she asked what my wife did for a job. And so my wife said, oh, I'm a women's ministry leader. And so the receptionist said, well, what are you here for? And my wife said, I'm here for stress, you know, and for, for some depression. She said, well... I thought you were a women's ministry leader. You know what to do. And my wife said, no, why don't you tell me? She said, you just need to pray. You know, and my wife, being a wise and, and patient woman, knows that it's to her glory to overlook an offense. Said, okay, you know, I'll try that some more. This receptionist had no clue my wife had been praying for a year for this suffering to go away. And so that's what I mean. We can do a better job, I think, in our own lives of dealing with stress and, and admitting that we really do have pain, but we can do a better job in our sympathy for other people. I think when people come to us with problems, we can do better than just saying, have more faith, brother. Have more faith, sister. 
You just need to pray more. We can do better than that. We can listen. We can, we can feel pain. We can rejoice with those who rejoice, and we can mourn with those who mourn. Amen? And so what David is saying is that God's favor or blessings, they're, they're not just for this life alone. He's not just saying that you're going to have a night of weeping, but your whole life is going to be blessed. In fact, when he says that God's favor lasts for a lifetime, is he saying it lasts for life eternal? I don't often like to get into word studies because they can be kind of academic and just it's, it's my way of making myself look smarter than I am. But this is cool. And I want to share with you the Hebrew word for life here. It's chayai. And you got to get that like in your throat. It's chayai. And what it means is not just life in this lifespan, but in life eternal. Life forever. And if you have your, your paper Bibles or if you have your, you know, cell Bibles, you can just look over to Psalm 36 verse 9 where you find this word, the same Hebrew word, chayai, used in a different context. And it says in Psalm 36, verse 9, for with you is the fountain of life. Not just lifespan on earth, but in God is life itself. Life eternal springs from him. And then also, if you want to look at this in Psalm 42, Verse 2. There's another instance of this word popping up where the psalmist says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, the Chayai God. God's life is not brief and temporary, God's life is eternal. He is the living God. And so in Him is life. And what David, I believe, is really saying is that this life has its moments of difficulty, but in God is the Chayai. And God is the life eternal. And so let's look to him. Let's look beyond our brief and momentary troubles. Because there's something better waiting for us on the other side. I want you to spend some time imagining what that is. I'm going to branch off a little bit from the psalm here. We're encouraged throughout the scriptures to really contemplate heaven. To be encouraged and to remind one another that we're looking forward to a better life. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, says that God is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And I want you to think about that, because we're really good at asking. We are really good at asking. Remember I said that sometimes we ask too much. We expect too much. But I want you to think, because we're all really good consumers, We've all been, you know, most of us have been brought up in American culture where we expect once a year at Christmas time, we get to write a list of things that we want. And then as adults, it gets more sophisticated because we go on Yelp and we, we say, like, what we like about things and how things could be better. And maybe you, you're an early adopter and you like to get the brand new technology when it comes out. And maybe you can, you can say, well, this feature is not really worked out yet. They still have some kinks and some bugs in the systems. So you're very good at asking and imagining greater things. And I want you to think about this. You could ask for some pretty amazing things. You could ask for a better iPad. You can imagine that, right? You can think about how they could tweak it to make it better. 
You could think of how a meal could be perfect. At your favorite restaurant, they could tweak something, add some more salt, they could have better service, they could lower the price. You can think of a way to make it better, okay? But what it says in Ephesians 3.20 is that God can do even more than you could ever ask. Your wildest dreams can't can't even come close to what God could prepare for you. He has something prepared for you that's beyond your ability to even imagine. It says that the angels cry out in his presence, holy, holy, holy. You know, I used to think that heaven was going to be this boring place where we all get a set of wings and a harp, and we all just play the harp all day long. And we're forced to sing these songs to God, holy, holy, holy. You know, I thought we'd get tired of that. That sounds boring. But in fact, what I've come to understand is that when the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy in his presence, they're not being forced to do that. That's erupting from them voluntarily. And you've experienced this too. When you have gotten or received something that was so amazing, you had to tell somebody about it. Maybe you went on Yelp or you went on a blog and you're like, I got to tell people about this. this is so awesome. But have you ever had something that was so great, all you could do all day long, day in and day out, is just extol its praises? Has there ever been anything like that in your life where you didn't get bored with it within a few weeks or a few months? There's never been anything like that. But in heaven, all we will do all day long as we look upon God's face, is we will just shout, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And you'll take a step away from God and see one of your friends, and you'll both be saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All day long, you will want to sing his praises. It's so much more than we could ever ask or imagine. And I realize I'm not talking about the psalm here, and I'm just spending some time talking about heaven, but that's okay. I don't feel bad about that. <laughs> David wrote this psalm for something he was never going to see. When he experienced pain and sadness, he looked forward and ahead. And, I, and I'm asking us to do the same thing as we look ahead to heaven. So I want to continue on, though, because how much time do I really have? Not that much more. Okay. Verse 6. David says, in my prosperity, I said, I will never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you had set me strong as a mountain. You hid your face, and I was terrified. Wait, what? There's a weird twist that happens here, right? He starts off by saying, I'm strong, I'm powerful, and then God hid his face from me. Is he expressing pride? Is, that what he, is this a confession? He's saying, I was really full of myself, and I was like, I'm awesome, I'm strong, and that's why God hid his face from me. No. Read the passage with me. What he's saying is, Lord, by your favor, you made me strong. He's not being prideful. What David is expressing here is something we have all experienced, and that's when we feel like we have done everything right, and God still says no. We feel like we have been a good Christian, we have worked hard, we deserve a blessing, and God says no. We feel abandoned by God. I believe David is looking back to the time when he asked to build the temple. He was at a high point spiritually. 
He wanted to do something great for God. And God said no. And it felt like God has hid his face from him. I want you to know there will be times when God tells you no. Sometimes when it feels deserved, it hurts a little bit less. You know you're a sinner. God says no. You're like, all right, that's fine. I wouldn't say yes to me either. But when you've done everything right and you're on a spiritual high, it hurts that much more when God says no. Maybe you were praying for a relative that was really a a, a disciple and a spiritual person and you wanted them to be healed and they were sick and God said no. It's their time. And you felt abandoned by God. Maybe, Maybe you've been slaving at a job you hate and you've been praying for something better and God just said no. For me, I pray to play guitar like Prince. (laughs) I want to be able, I want to have a guitar like Prince. (laughs) But no matter how spiritual I am, God is continuing to say no to me on that. (laughs) And, And I joke about that because I don't think that what David's asking for is some huge thing. He just wanted to build a temple. And God said no, but it hurts. It hurts when God says no to the big things or the small things. It still hurts. And so what do you do? What do you do when God says no? What David did was he fought and wrestled with God in prayer. Read on with me in verse 8. I cried to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust give you thanks? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. Lord, be my helper. He's really feeling it, right? I'm feeling like I'm going to die and I'm not going to give you praise anymore. All I want to do is build a temple so I can praise you. Is the dust going to do that for you? I don't think so. God, remember, you're my helper. Help me out. David is kind of bold in his prayer here, isn't he? almost bordering on offensiveness. I think that's why he starts off the whole psalm being really praising. God, you're great, you're great, you're great, but there's this thing I really want. Right? And he's wrestling with God. And this is really profound what he says when he says, Hear, O Lord. Again, the Hebrew is Shema Adonai. Does anybody know what Shema is most commonly heard in? It's the most commonly referenced scripture in the whole Bible. It's not John 3.16. It's not Jesus wept. It's Deuteronomy 6. Because every day, uh, a practicing Jew will pray the Shema. Shema Yisrael. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a reminder to the people that they have entered into a commitment with God that he will be their one and only love. And every morning they pray Shema Yisrael, hear Israel. David is flipping it. Do you see? Shema Adonai, hear God. You're my helper. Hear me, God. I hear you. Are you hearing me? There's a boldness in David's prayer here. And that should encourage us a little bit. We can be bold in our prayers. This isn't as controversial a statement, but sometimes we don't ask enough. Sometimes we expect too much, but sometimes we don't expect enough. 
We think we can't ask boldly, that God will somehow reject us simply because we're asking boldly. God wants us to come to him and pray faithful prayers. The point I really want to drive home here is that life is filled with sorrow. You may go through years of pain and suffering, but God still wants you to pray boldly. He doesn't want you to give up. He wants you to continue coming to him and praying. And he will answer many of your prayers, many of them. And even more, if you will pray boldly. And I know that this could almost sound like the most elementary lesson ever. And like, I know, pray. And and that that is like the worst advice to give to somebody who's suffering. Just pray more. I even said that like 20 minutes ago. But I don't think that we've really got this point. I don't think we internalize it the way we should. Think about how Jesus constantly taught his disciples to pray. Constantly. And they were terrible at it. They even knew it. They even asked him, Lord, teach us to pray in Luke 11. They knew they were bad at it. But Jesus had to keep telling them, pray. And you ever see them do it in any of the four Gospels? (laughs) Think about that for a minute. Show me one verse in any of the four Gospels where any disciple says a prayer. They never do it, and they, they, they almost act like the Three Stooges. They're constantly bumbling around, messing things up. You know, they can't cast out a demon, and Jesus is like, you guys just need to pray. That's all you need to do. They're about to face uh, the, the most difficult time ever with the crucifixion, and Jesus is saying, just pray, and they fall asleep, and it's just, come on, guys, get it together. But what happens in the book of Acts after the resurrection? Can you find some scriptures where they pray? They're praying in every chapter just about. Prayer becomes a part of their daily lives. They are constantly in prayer. And what's the difference that it produces in their lives? They're not like the Three Stooges anymore. They look like Jesus. They're doing amazing things. And what was the difference? They started praying. So yes, you've heard this before. You've heard pray, pray, pray. But really, pray. Pray. Okay? And I want to give you a practical here. I want you to think of a disappointment that you've experienced. There's something you really wanted, and God said no to it. And maybe like a good little boy or girl, you said, okay, God, okay. I want you to pray through it some more. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you really had hopes, uh, ministry hopes or spiritual dream hopes. That, for me, is my disappointment. There's things that I just wanted to go differently in Bakersfield that they didn't turn out the way I wanted them to. And there's a proverb that's near to my heart that says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Yeah. There's a certain bitterness and a calcification that can creep into your heart when you don't get the things that you want. Yeah. Hope deferred can make the heart sick. I want you to find one of your hopes that's been deferred and pray through it. And I want you to take Psalm 30 as a little blueprint for your prayer so that you don't just rush into your prayer to God saying, give me what I want. I'm disappointed in you, but start like David did and say, God, I'm remembering all the great things that you have done. You've been with me from the beginning, but there's this thing that hurts, and I just want to pray about it with you, and I want you to remember me. And then hopefully, as you pray through that, God will really work in your heart and your life to either give you what you've been wanting or help you to accept the answer of no. 
And here's what David says in the final few verses here in verse 11. He says, For you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. That's cool. He was saying, like, I was, like, wearing burlap sacks, but now my clothing is gladness itself. So that my glory may sing praise to you. He's saying so, so that, you know, what's good in me, what's radiant in me, can lift up praise to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. In the end, David's thirst was quenched by God. He was satisfied. Not in a fake way, because he's real about his stress. It's there, but he knows in the end, God is his life. I really want to impress upon you again to be real with your suffering, real with your stress, and to continue looking ahead with hope to the home that you have in heaven. Amen?